welcome back to Krista CMS Educational Podcast Series. I'll be your host, Michael Williams. And today we'll actually be uh, meeting up with Dr. Brandon Euler to discuss asthma patients. I think that he's got a lot uh, to talk about in this one, which is very interesting. Uh, also to include that a lot of management with uh, our new vent, Z-Vents, and how to manage some of these patients uh, that can be considered difficult. Uh, so sit back and relax and um, get ready for asthma. Well, welcome back, uh, Dr. Euler, Michael here uh, for another podcast. Um, we're happy to have y'all back. Uh, hopefully y'all were able to learn something from the last podcast that we did in October on trauma and burn management. Mm. Uh, today, we're going to kind of transition away from trauma uh, and move into some airway complications. Uh, complications with lower airway disease. Um, hopefully you're staying warm. Uh, we know it's starting to get cold. A um, couple of things I have, uh, just some updates. Uh, the ventilators should be out on trucks now. If y'all have any questions on how to use them or, or need any kind of education, let us know. Uh, but hopefully they're working out well for you and, and much easier to use than the previous vents. We're also going to be uh, rolling out the automated cardiac compression devices soon. We have new CPGs for those that I want y'all to look through um, and make sure you're updating your acid remap. Make sure that y'all have access to acid remap and not using any old CPGs or paper copies. We want all of those off of the trucks. Uh, so you have the most up-to-date CPGs uh, that you're able to access. <clears throat> we're also putting together, uh, as some of you may know, we're trying to replace the red bag, and so we're going to be putting a committee together soon, uh, and we will reach out to you to see if you would be willing to help us to kind of go through the, the new bags uh, as far as where to place things and kind of what your thoughts are. Um, do you have anything else, Michael? Uh, nope. No, I think we're doing good with that. That's going to be exciting with the, yep. the red bag. Yeah. I guess with the Z vents. Just remember, we need to keep our regulators both on the trucks because uh, there are some that are two-stage. Yeah that we need to keep right around 55, no more than 60, but yep. 55 is ideal. Those actually changing those pressures uh, on that two-stage regulator can affect uh, those vents. Yeah, yeah, we need to make sure we're doing that for sure. Well, I guess what, let's get into the case. Okay, yeah. So um, you are dispatched for a 13-year-old female uh, that mother called 911 for difficulty of breathing. You arrive on scene, you find uh, 13, lay on the ground in obvious respiratory distress. Mother states that she started having tr trouble breathing this morning and has gotten worse in the past hour. And then she started having significant wheezing and increased work of breathing. Mother states that she does have a history of asthma and um, gave her some prednisone from a previous exacerbation, as well as some of her albuterol uh, without any relief of her symptoms. Uh, so you see the patient, uh, she does appear to be in distress. Uh, she's um, retracting, she's tachypneic, and has audible wheezing. You are able to obtain some vital signs. You get a blood pressure of 102 over 78, a pulse of 82, res respiratory rate of 26, and she's satting 99% on room air. As you can tell, this is a sick patient. She has, she's critical. She has a history of asthma, likely an asthma exacerbation, um, but we obviously need to keep our differential wide. With any of these respiratory stress patients, it could be a number of things. It could be a pneumothorax. She could have some type of obstruction, foreign body. Uh, could be a pericardial tamponade. Could be a pneumothorax. Could be heart failure. Not likely in a 13-year-old, but possible. 
um, in any type of arrhythmia or ACS. So um, this is somebody that you're really going to need to to manage quickly and, and know um, how to manage asthma, uh, given her history, and that it likely is an asthma exacerbation. So I want to talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of asthma before we get into the symptoms and the management of it. So asthma is characterized by bronchial hyperresponsiveness. It's the tendency of airway to narrow excessively in response to a variety of stimuli. So that could be the cold weather that's coming on now. It could be allergens, pollen, um, dust, any number of things that would not cause any type of bronchoconstriction in somebody that does not have lower airway disease or asthma. <clears throat> so many of the features of asthma overlap with COPD. It's not necessarily a problem of being able to get air in. It's more of a problem of getting air out uh, because of the bronchoconstriction. <clears throat> so there, some of y'all have heard of reactive airway disease. Some people kind of use that interchangeably with asthma, but it's reactive airway disease is not really asthma. It, it's an imprecise term uh, that is used to describe symptoms of cough and wheezing. Uh, it may be appropriate in very young children whom, who don't have a diagnosis of asthma, uh, and asthma can't be diagnosed as because of their age. So reactive airway disease is not really asthma, um, but some people use it interchangeably. So just need to be aware of that. Hmm. So kind of getting into what are these patients going to present like? So the classic symptoms of asthma are wheezing, cough, shortness of breath, and chest tightness. But, but patients may not have all of those together. They may have just wheezing. They may just have cough. They may have chest tightness. And be aware, everything that wheezes is not asthma. Um, and wheezing does not indicate the severity of, of the exacerbation. Um, oftentimes, their cough is worse at night. Then they'll have shortness of breath, chest tightness. Uh, so some of the things that you're going to see on your exam is they're going to have high-pitched wheezing, mostly on expiration. They're going to be tachypneic. Um, they may be retracting, uh, they'll be tachycardic, uh, they ha will have a prolonged expiratory phase within uh, their respiratory rate and respiration. They're going to have decreased breath sounds or diminished breath sounds. Uh, they may be tripoding, and then they, like I said, have some retracting accessory muscle use. The worse their exacerbation, they'll start speaking in one or two word sentences. And so those are kind of the things that we're going to look for. Um, and I actually had a patient yesterday uh, in the emergency department that came in a uh, 20 year old uh, history of asthma. She was tripoding, talking in one, two word sentences, had very diminished breath sounds, very tight. Uh, when I was auscultating her lungs uh, with diffuse wheezing, she was very sick, critical. And I'll talk more about kind of how I managed her just because it kind of fit well as I was managing her. I thought about the podcast and what we were doing today. So I'll talk a little bit about that too. Can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. On the physical findings, top of the list, mm -hmm. it says high-pitched wheezing on expiration. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> There's kind of a, a process how asthma comes on, mm -hmm. right? So you would actually find um, wheezing in all lobes, or how, how would you find so, something in the earlier phases versus yeah. the more end phase? So as you get bronchoconstriction, the airways start to tighten up mm -hmm. uh, and constrict, then you'll start getting wheezing. You may not hear it in all lung fields initially, but over time, I, I think you'll start hearing it more and more throughout the lungs. And that's just because of the bronchoconstriction. And eventually, you'll, they'll be so bronchoconstricted, you may not hear any wheezing. So they'll go you'll back have to diminished diminished. breath sounds. Yeah. And that's more of a uh, critical. That's story. more of a, I, I, and from my experience, <clears throat> more of a later finding. And then as you start to give albuterol, then you'll start hearing wheezing as they start to open up a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Um, so 
there's really three main goals in managing these patients. Um, immediate management and, and a severe accident exacerbation. You want to stave off intubation. You want to do everything you can not to intubate these patients. These patients do not do well when they're intubated. They're at high risk of aerotrauma, uh, pneumothorax, and other complications. So we want to try not to intubate these patients uh, because of, of the increased risk of morbidity and mortality. So we want to maximize our pre-intubation parameters um, and be ready for intubation in case they don't turn around with our management um, and intubation is required, which is unfortunately what I had to do yesterday uh, when I was in the emergency department. We want to reverse bronchoconstriction to decrease the work of breathing and prevent respiratory failure, which would lead us to intubating the patient. So just like all patients, you want to follow the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. All of these patients are going to need an IV and we need to start them on supplemental oxygen. Again, I don't think I mentioned it on the pathophysiology, but, but asthma it's, coincides with COPD and it's not a problem of getting oxygen in. It's more of a problem getting oxygen out because of that bronchoconstriction. But I would still put these patients on supplemental oxygen, nasal cannula. Um, and, and hypoxia will occur late in these patients with severe asthma exacerbations. So we don't want to wait for the patient to get hypoxic before we start providing oxygen. So go ahead and start the oxygen, get the IV, uh, following your ABCs. Again, kind of talking about the oxygen, respiratory support is, is important. So provide these patients with a nasal cannula or high flow nasal cannula, um, a non-rebreather with beta agonist, and then non-invasive positive pressure ventilation uh, is kind of our next step before intubation. Now, I'm, I'm saying all this to begin with, but we're going to be doing other things before we get to positive pressure ventilation uh, with bronchodilators, corticosteroids, magnesium, epinephrine. But we need to be thinking about respiratory support with the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation being something we're going to be going to. Um, and so when we start patients on this, the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation or BiPAP, we are decreasing their work of breathing and improving that gas exchange. So we're helping them get CO2 out, helping them get uh, oxygen in and decreasing that, that work of breathing. But we want our PEEP to be pretty low. Mm. Um, and so I mentioned it a little bit, but, but non-invasive uh, uh, ventilation will only allow the patient to rest their respiratory muscles and it does not solve the underlying pathology. So it decreases the work of breathing, improves the oxygen gas exchange, but doesn't treat the underlying cause. And so that's what we're going to talk about now. And that's with the bronchodilators. So albuterol is what we all use. It's a short acting beta two selective adrenergic agonist that reverses bronchoconstriction. So the onset of action of albuterol is less than five minutes. You're going to give five milligram doses. You can repeat that, or you can put patients on a continuous nebulizer at 10 to 20, 10 to 20 milligrams per hour. Um, and you want to get as much of al that albuterol, the beta 2 agonist, into the lungs as possible. And I'll, I'll talk about RCPGs and what we want you all to be doing more specifically once we talk about everything. That's kind of what, what everybody recommends um, for albuterol. And then we have ipratropium bromide, which is a short-acting muscarinic antagonist or an anticholinergic that blocks the action of acetylcholine at parasympathetic sites within the bronchial smooth muscle, leading to bronchodilation. And the onset of ipratropium is about 15 minutes. You can get 500 mics nebulized every 20 minutes for three doses along with the albuterol. <clears throat> so you'll be doing that together. 
And then steroids is really, or corticosteroids is really the definitive management for asthmatics. But unfortunately, steroids do not help in the immediate phase of everything. So the, the, the resolution of asthma, <clears throat> refractory to intensive bronchodilatherapy is because you still have that persistent obstruction or that persistent bronchoconstriction within the airway, causing inflammation, causing intraluminal plugging uh, with mucus. Uh, and so steroids will actually increase smooth muscle expression of the beta adrenergic uh, receptors as well, increasing the response to albuterol and ipratropium. But steroids take about six hours to have any type of effect on these patients. So it's not likely to help in that acute phase, like I mentioned, but I think it's, it's better to get it started early so they can get the benefit earlier. Um, but you need to be doing albuterol, ipratropium, and the corticosteroids all within the same time frame, uh, despite steroids not really helping immediately. Um, and so kind of keep that in mind, get the albuterol, get the protropium going, and then start the steroids. Uh, and you're going to give 125 milligrams IV or IM methylprednisolone. Uh, if it's a, a pediatric patient, we want you per RCPG to do dexamethasone 0.6 milligrams per kilogram PO or IV with a max of 10 milligrams. Um, and then magnesium um, is something that I, I'm pretty fond of uh, and I use quite a bit in asthma, COPD, even though the use is fairly controversial uh, and the benefits are pretty debated. Magnesium is thought to cause bronchodilation due to the calcium influx into the airway smooth muscle cells, leading to bronchodilation and helping these patients out. Uh, the best evidence for magnesium is from a systematic review of 14 studies with an overall decrease in hospitalization with IV magnesium compared to placebo. There is no, from this study, was no difference in duration of emergency department treatment of admission to the ICU. But, but with magnesium, there's not a whole lot of adverse effects to it. It's pretty safe medication um, with potential for a huge benefit, even despite the absence of any type of robust evidence for it. So. You're going to give two milligrams IV over five minutes. And from what I had read, put this together, you can actually give that three times within the first hour. So you could give up to six milligrams over an hour. That's not something we'll be doing by hopefully by the time you get to that, you're at the emergency department and hospital can take over the patient's care. Uh, the next thing is uh, epinephrine. So epinephrine is a non-selective beta agonist that causes bronchodilation vasoconstriction, increases cardiac contractility, and increases the patient's heart rate. So in patients with severe asthma exacerbations, uh, inhaled beta agonists may have minimal benefit due to the severe bronchoconstriction, limiting the delivery of albuterol or ipratropium to the distal, distal bronchioles. So in this case, epinephrine may be necessary to give the patient. Um, and so the dose is three to 500 micrograms IM if you do not have an IV. You can give one to five micrograms per minute IV or IO. IV epinephrine reaches target tissue more rapidly than IM. So if you, I would establish an IV if you can, give it IV. In patients that are pregnant, um, it's actually, and I mentioned this just because it was talked about in, in the articles I was reading, um, it's recommended to use caution in pregnant patients because of the, the possibility of causing uterine invasive constriction. So I would be careful about using that in, in pregnant patients. Uh, you can give nebulized epinephrine at 0.5 mils of 2.25% racemic epi or five mils of the one in 1000 L-isomer epinephrine or one milligram in one mil. 
Um, I would prefer uh, in our CPGs recommend per protocol to use IV and IO. So I would use that. I think that it gets more systemic effect than, than nebulized. Uh, and then all these patients are dehydrated um, from severe and sensible losses from their tachypnea and increased risk of breathing. So they need fluids. So aggressive resuscitation should be given early to replete that intravascular volume loss. So you're gonna give 30 cc's per kilogram IV fluids. In kids, it may be 20 cc's per kilogram. And then monitor these patients for hypotension because they can become fairly hypotensive due to that volume loss from the insensible losses. Uh, and then their lung hyperinflation because they can't get uh, air out, they can't exhale. Um, they can get decreased pulmonary venous return, which then leads to hypotension as well. So be aware of that. That's really important if you come down to needing to intubate the patient um, because these patients are at risk of periarrest. If you've done everything that you can, you've given albuterol, you've given epitropium, you've given steroids, you've given magnesium, you've given IV or IM epi, uh, and you've even tried the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, uh, then you may be forced to intubate these patients. So I'll kind of talk a little bit about my patient yesterday. So I mentioned that she was a 23-year-old history of asthma, came into Kipnik, she was retracting, she had diminished breath sounds with diffuse faint wheezing. So she was very sick, very critical. She was tripoding when I walked in the room. So we started throwing the kitchen sink at her. We gave her albuterol, we gave her epitropium, we gave her solumedrol, we gave her magnesium. I talked to her about BiPAP. She wasn't keeping any of the non-rebreather reservoirs on. She kept taking them off, uh, tried the BiPAP. She wouldn't tolerate the BiPAP, kept ripping it off, tried epinephrine. She just kept on not really being compliant, taking the BiPAP off, taking the, the albuterol off. And as I mentioned earlier, you want to get as much of that into the lungs as possible. If the patient's not wearing it, then they're not going to get any of it. Uh, and so my hands were forced and I actually had to intubate the patient. Um, I talked to her about it, told her we either do positive pressure ventilation, do BiPAP or we intubate, refuse to wear the BiPAP. So we were forced to intubate. And so you may be in that situation as well. <clears throat> so when you do that, you need to be thinking about hypotension, peri-arrest because of the, of the hypovolemia that these patients can get, as well as the severe hypoxia, uh, acidosis that, that they'll, they'll be in. So they're just high risk for intubation. None of us want to do that unless we absolutely have to. It's obviously a, a last resort intervention, um, and that's due to everything I've kind of mentioned already. Um, you increase their, their airway resistance and dead space without any benefit, really. Um, so it's, it's really indicated for respiratory fatigue. You want to have everything ready for intubation. You want to take your time um, and prepare for post-intubation hypotension. Again, because of the volume loss and decreased venous return uh, and the increased risk of peri-intubation. These patients may become, once you, you induce them and paralyze them, they may be satting at 99%. They can get hypoxic very quick because they're already very bronchoconstricted. They have, now you've taken their respiratory effort away. They, they can get hypoxic very quick. You're going to do DSI in these patients. We're going to use ketamine and ketamine can actually lead to some bronchodilatation. Um, you're going to follow our CPGs um, for the ketamine dose, and then you're going to uh, use BVM. Um, you may be able to use a, a BiPAP machine. These patients, uh, if they can tolerate it after giving the ketamine, I have done that in some asthmatics where I was trying to hold off intubation. I give them ketamine. I have them on BiPAP and they do really well with just the ketamine. I don't have to intubate them. The sedation wears off uh, and 
they do well. I would say be prepared to intubate these patients um, if you give them ketamine and, and not necessarily rely on them being okay with just a BiPAP. I mention that only because I, I have done that in the emergency department where it's a little bit more controlled setting than what y'all <clears throat> And then following our DSI, um, if their oxygen level is 94% or greater, then prepare to intubate, uh, paralyze with rocuronium, and then intubate. Um, when you are successful, get the ET tube in, in position, some kind of settings for the ventilator that you're gonna have, you wanna maintain oxygenation, minimize hyperinflation, and reduce their risk of barotrauma. So you wanna allow as much time as possible for the patient to exhale. Uh, and oftentimes these patients are gonna require permissive hypercapnia because you need that prolonged exhalation phase. Uh, you wanna avoid breast stacking uh, that leads to hyperinflation, leads to increased airway pressures, and possibly the development of a tension pneumothorax, decreased cardiac output, and even cardiac arrest. So you wanna go with a very low tidal volume. Um, it's recommended six mils per kg, ideal body weight. The patient I had yesterday, we actually did it four mils per kg of ideal body weight. Uh, we were still getting good, really good tidal volumes, but we reduced her risk of barotrauma developing that tension pneumothorax. You wanna set your inspiratory flow rate to 100 liters per minute. Uh, and then a goal, expiratory time, your inspiratory to expiratory ratio is one to four. Uh, and then you're going to start your FiO2 at 100%. You want to titrate down, keeping your oxygen saturations 94% or higher. And again, I mentioned this with the, the BiPAP settings or non-invasive non positive pressure ventilation. You want your PEEP to be low, so minimal to no PEEP, uh, and keep plateau pressures less than 30 millimeters. Um, if it is greater than 30 millimeters, you need to keep, decrease their rate and decrease their tidal volume because that increases their risk of barotrauma, breast stacking, um, development of a pneumothorax and decreased cardiac output. So I want to talk a little bit about RCPG. Um, a lot of what I talked about is from the literature that I was able to research. And I want to just kind of clarify RCPGs and go through that real quick with you. You have a patient you're concerned for asthma exacerbation. Um, if they're stable um, or unstable, you need to determine that. Are they sick or not sick? Um, if they're unstable, you need to be worried about peri-arrest. So are they bradycardic? Are they hypotensive? Are they altered? Do they have diminished or absent lung sounds? They may not have any wheezing. If that's the case and they, they are unstable, they have signs of peri-arrest, we want you to give epinephrine the most rapid accessible route that you have at that time. So if it's IM, you're going to give 0 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams in an adult, in a pediatric patient, you're going to give 0 0.01 milligrams per kilogram with a max of 0 0.3 milligrams. If you have an IV established, you're going to give 2 to 10 mics per minute in an adult. In a pediatric patient, you're going to give 0 0.1 to, 0 to 2 mics per kilogram per minute. And you want to titrate for blood pressure uh, as well as their, their uh, hemodynamic uh, status. So once you've done that, then you're going to start the albuterol at 2.5 milligrams, and you can repeat that three times. Then you're going to do ipratropium, 0.5 milligrams, um, and you can repeat that once every 15 minutes. Uh, start their fluids at 20 cc's per kilogram, unless they have heart failure. You want to give solumedrol, 125 milligrams in an adult, in a pediatric patient, 0.6 milligrams per kilogram, uh, with a max of 10 milligrams. And then if they have refractory bronchospasms, they're not improving, um, still tachypneic, they're still retracting, diminished breast sounds, 
give magnesium in an adult that's two grams over 10 minutes and a pediatric patient uh, you're going to get 50 milligrams per kilogram up to two two grams uh, over 10 minutes um, and so that's our cpg um, you know and we can get into the dsi and intubation we've talked about that in previous podcasts um, but but this is important where we see a lot of that this is these are patients that we're taking care of uh, before they get to the hospital and we can provide them significant amount of care and get them better um, with the interventions that we can provide so um, that's all i have today uh, i hope that, that this was um, good and i hope that you were able to learn something from it um, you may know already a lot about asthma as much as, much as we see and take care of but it's always good to review um, the management of these patients that we see on a regular basis um, if y'all have any questions or want clarification on anything, let me know. Um, and I'm happy to, to answer any questions. Well, I do think that it's a perfect timing with the Z event going mm -hmm. out and you actually talking a little bit more about how to manage that on yeah. event, because I'm sure that all the medics out there are asking the same questions, yeah. being that that wasn't a common thing for them. So yeah, yeah we provide... don't, I don't think we intubate a lot of these <clears throat> asthmatics, but, mm -hmm. but there's always going to be that potential that you will have to intubate an asthmatic and you need to know how to set the vents for these patients. Yeah. Or even if you're putting them on bypass. Or if you're putting them on bypass, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which we have now. Yeah. Yeah. And we a, a new vent that hopefully y'all know how to use yeah. and um, can um, manage these patients a lot better with with the new vents. Well, that's awesome. Looks like we're running out of time. Yeah. But uh, it was great. Thank you. Awesome. Thank y'all.